Listener Production. Welcome back to Crime Insiders Forensics. This week, more gripping insights into the world of forensic science. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. On this week's episode, the Blanglo Forest Backpacker Murders and how forensic science helped catch Ivan Milat. Someone had been cutting logs with the chainsaw right next to where this body was, but they hadn't seen the skulls, so they just thought, well, kangaroo or something. So for years, people had been just about tripping over these, these remains and not finding them. Professor Chris Griffiths is one of Australia's most decorated forensic experts and through his work in forensic odontology has helped solve some of Australia's most high-profile crimes. Odontology is a forensic field which uses dental records, dental remains and even bite marks to assist in identifying victims and tracking down offenders. For Chris, it's seen him identify victims of war crimes in Europe, assist in managing mass fatalities and in particular circumstances, prosecute those responsible. We'll get to those cases, but before we do, Chris is taking me back to the early 90s. A number of backpackers had vanished and been reported missing, but nothing had been found. Ken Seely and Keith Coldwell were orienteering in the Blanglow State Forest, and a potent scent had wafted through where they were running. A few moments later, they uncovered a corpse and set off an investigation never before seen in Australia. If you bury some remains only about 30 centimetres down, the chances of finding it are next to nil. And when the police picked us up from Bankstown Airport to take us to the site and fly us to the site, you flew over the catchment area and it's just a huge expanse of, of bushland You could go off those fire trails anywhere and hide someone, and if you buried them 30 centimetres down, you would never find them. It's not like Germany, where every square inch is kind of, you know, kind of cultivated. We've just got so much bush. But this person just covered them up with sticks, and and so they were only hidden to a certain, not very well. Gibson's remains, and when we found him was between two logs and had been covered over it. So he was fairly well hidden. But um, Deborah Everett's had been scattered by animals. So some of them had been scattered, but a lot were hidden. And when you did get there and you took the logs off the top of these people and looked how they died, you know, with with gags in their mouths and their hands tied behind their back with cut material, with small holes in the back of their skulls, it was pretty... Pretty ordinary. So we had our normal gloves on and everything so we could actually not contaminate them, but we weren't using very much DNA then, so there wasn't the same significance about touching things um, that there is now, so you cross-contaminate things. So we just 
um, concentrated on the postcranial part of the body and I concentrated on the skull and lifting the skull carefully. Because one of the remains we had, when I knew his dental records, he had no fillings apart from when he was playing AFL, he'd knocked one tooth and devitalized it and it had a root filling in it. And when I lifted the skull, the one tooth that wasn't there that we had the x-ray of was the one that was missing. So I sieved underneath that and I sieved underneath that and I went deeper and deeper and some insects or something had had made a a nest right down deep and the tooth had gone right down into this nest about 20 centimetres below where, where the remains were. So I managed to then find this tooth that matched up with the X-ray to identify um, James Gibson. That his mother then came up with a mouth guard that had been made for his football and we poured plaster into the mouth guard and we had a complete copy of his, his dentition as well. The last two we found were the two, the German couple, Nabor Nugebauer and Anja, his girlfriend, Anja Hepschek. We found his body and we were looking around because I, I recognised his. I'd looked at his um, dental condition, matched it up against the charting, so we knew it was basically him. Where was she? And we looked all around very, very carefully. And one of the police found there was a very large log with some other timbers lying very closely up against it, which didn't look random. So the police started lifting some of these timbers off and and it was very thick timber and underneath that was the remains of looked like a body, but it had no head. And there was no space to get a head out through it. You couldn't have got a mouse out through that those those timbers. And heads, although they tend to roll sometimes, we found in Timor the massacre in the Akusi after the um, the independence thing in Timor, when we exhumed the mass graves there, bodies had washed and rolled down. But this was fairly flat surface. And the police looked around for hundreds of metres and they had forestry people. And then when doing the autopsy, he found there was a cut mark in the cervical um, vertebra. So her head had been taken off. Where it is, we don't know. So that was the only one of the seven that had to be identified by DNA. The other six were identified from their dental evidence. So what happens to her head, I don't know. When the initial bodies were found, how wide a perimeter are the police cordoning off? A few hundred metres, quite a large area. Because they didn't want anyone trampsing through it. With the remains that um, Bruce Pryor found of Gibson and Everett, when he took the skull to the police in Barrel, they all came out and tramped through the whole area for a number of times before they rang up the um, forensic services group to come out and look at it. And so the police saying, don't tell the rest of the people we've done this, don't tell them (laughs) we'll get into trouble. One of the problems back then too was that um, the I gather was that the records weren't actually computerised, and so the stations had their own. Um, and it was only eventually when a British backpacker who had actually been in a car with Ivan Malat, who was later convicted yeah. of the serial killings, onions, uh, onion. Paul Onion, yeah. yeah, and and the state local station had actually taken a report. Yes. that hadn't been shared with anybody else. Yeah, because he'd given that report four months beforehand, um, or 
in England for months as well as reporting it to the police, you know, when it had happened because he'd lost his passport and his money and everything. When he had that confrontation, he jumped out of Ivan Milat's car and ran away and there was a fight in the road and, and a passerby gave him a lift and he went to the barrel police and and they poo hard it at that stage. And then he gave the report in England. Um, it was four months before that was kind of registered. Another of your tasks with your work in terms of forensic identification also involves ageing and trying to calculate the age of remains, how old they were. Not how long they've been there, but how old they were. Can you talk about crimes you've been involved in that involved ageing, identifying as well? Kids up to about the age of 20, the most accurate method of doing it is by... um, using dental x-rays, because you've got all the developing dentition within the jaws of an individual, and you can take x-rays and you can pick the younger the child, the the more accurate the um, identification by age was. Because I'd been involved with this, and I knew the director of the Department of Forensic Medicine, Godfrey Oakley, um, well, he said he was going to be part of an Australian federal government um, scientific investigation unit to to be part of the Australian War Crimes Commission to go to Russia or the Ukraine to exhume some mass graves there. And could I come along as part of the team to age these 19 children who had been allegedly killed in the Ukraine? So in 1990, we... um, went off to Russia and then flew from Russia and went to a little village called Israelovka. Interesting, because you're working with the Russian army. The Russian army were doing the initial digging for us. We had a KGB colonel as our kind of minder to keep us, you know, honest. And we went out into the middle of this paddock. And if you've ever... In the Ukraine, it is the most beautiful rolling, sloping hill with about over a metre of topsoil. In Australia, you've got about six inches of topsoil. There, you've got a metre of topsoil. So they grow grow so much wheat, as you can see at the moment. They're feeding half the bloody world. Um, but we had a witness who said, as a 12-year-old, he'd been ploughing a field, but he'd heard this shooting. He went up to the hedgerow and he saw this group, you know, killing these people and, and throwing them into the pit. So you had this bloke in his 70s he had a friend stand around where he thought this pit was. And we thought, we've come all the way from Australia to find a grave in the middle of this rolling, nondescript, what's an hill, you know, fields where this bloke thinks it is. And so we thought, oh, that's the end of that. We'll be back to Australia. But Professor Richard Wright, who is an anthropologist and archaeologist, and his wife was an anthropologist, Sonia, said, well, put a backhoe cut the Russians' army will put a backhoe cut across this area for about 50 metres. And because you've got this uh, Ukrainian topsoil, and underneath it you've got this white chalk, so when you mix it up to fill backfill into a gravesite, it's a different colour. So you've got the black topsoil and you've got this very lighter coloured. So we cut across it and you could see the demarcation from the outside of this grave. This bloke was right. After 50-odd years nearly, he had picked the exact spot where the grave was. Who was thought to have been the people behind the killings? 
of these children. As soon as the um, the German army came through, the Waffen SS came through as an extermination squad to remove all of the Jewish population wherever they went. And so they'd killed about 110 men and boys and they'd filled, partially filled the grave in. And then some bright spark thought, oh, we'll go back to the village and get the Michelin, the, mixed, the children who are of mixed kind of Russian and Jewish origins. So they told their mothers, right, oh, you've got a Jewish father, you, you have to come and register your child at the he- headquarters or whatever. So the, the women brought their kids along to be registered and not to be registered, they were actually pulled away from them and actually thrown into this cart and taken to the gravesite. And then these 19, 19 kids were actually mainly rifle-butted before they actually filled the grave in. And I was there to try and age the children to match up to the um, ages of the children that had been taken in this little village of Israelovka. The waste of life. Mm, everywhere. But the people who committed this atrocity, like these 19 murders, had actually escaped to Australia and were living in South Australia. Yes, yeah. They realised they weren't going to last long when the Russians came back through. So they changed their names. They went down to Austria and they said they were refugees and they came to Australia. And the same happened in Canada and the United States. Someone had, of the Jewish face would be walking through Melbourne and say, I remember you, you were in, you know, a guard at, you know, Auschwitz or something. Oh, not me, not me. And there were so many cases like this. Eventually, the Australian and the Canadian government, about the same time, it took 40 years for some reason, before, you know, the governments eventually melded to pressure to actually, you know, create this war crimes trial, which failed because they were tried under Australian law, which was set up for someone in Australia and something which is contemporary, but something 50 years before um, was hopeless. And this is why they realised that no one could be convicted. But it didn't matter. The most important thing was telling the story. So how did you date those 19 children? they were very young. Um, You know, there were one set of... We had to, you know, show all, you know, we're not pull one body up at a time. We had to kind of exhume the whole area so you could describe for the courts and take photographs for the, from our police who were with Australian police, take photographs. And then we'd, when we got that evidence, we slowly took one body up one at a time. But they'd been in this fairly um, alkaline soil for, you know, 40-odd years, and so the bones were very, very fragile. And we got down to the last area and we found a whole lot of very small teeth, no permanent teeth, all deciduous teeth. So I'd put it together and there was basically a complete set of deciduous teeth. By deciduous you mean child, children's baby teeth? baby teeth, yeah. yeah, baby teeth. And so this child I'd age through the, um, through the international uh, ageing studies to be less than six months old. But most of them, I think the oldest was about 11. It always worried me when you see how quickly people get used to killing, killing other human beings of the same species. It becomes like working in an abattoir. You just kind of, and you'd, we found in this mouse grave, there was bottles of vodka that, you know, 
the end of the day, it had been a good day's work. They had a few glasses of vodka and thrown them into the gravesite and filled it in. This was normal. You just become a normal thing to kill people. Um, and these aren't, you know, soldiers where you're chasing around and they're all over the place. They're fighting back. These are women and kids and children. You are a forensic odontologist. Tell us how on earth you got into that area. Basically, I'm a failed pilot. My father was in the RAF and I grew up with so many people around him um, who were in the Air Force, you know, the Australian Air Force too. So um, it's always been that way. Getting to know the pilots well, especially fighter pilots, have to fly on the edge of the envelope all the time. And to do that, they have accidents. And this is why I got involved in forensic dentistry. I think your first case sounds as though it was one of the most traumatic of your career. It wasn't good. Two people I knew well put two mirages on top of one another on the end of the strip. And there was a multiple of human factors going wrong. Like most accidents, there's so much, such a big sequence of things. Take out one of those things out of the sequence and it stops. Perry Kelly underneath, you know, his plane burnt and burnt and burnt and they dumped truckloads of, of foam onto it because it was on a strip and it's kept, kept on burning. When you start burning in an aluminium plane, you can't put them out. Why is that? Uh, aluminium burns nearly as hot as magnesium. When you start it, it's like all these aircraft that go down short of the runway, you always see a burnt out shell. So if you don't get out in the first minute and a half, you're not, it's not good. And so the Air Force said I had to formally identify Perry Kelly. And to do that, a burnt remains that had been the plane, myself and Terry Broom, who was, you know, a gynecologist, and had to do the autopsy, and both of us knew him well. And having to do this, it was a bit of a shambles. That's horrific. When the Air Force sent me to do public health postgraduate degree, um, you could write a thesis on what you wanted to. So I wrote one on identification in mass disasters to try and figure out what I should have done. And then I got out of the Air Force after seven years to take over one of the departments at the new dental school at Westmead. That's in Sydney. In Sydney. At the end. And the New South Wales Health Department said, you know something about this identification, you can do them. So I was constantly being taken away from Westmead to Glee, where the big forensic institute was there, to do these identifications of people who couldn't be visually identified because they'd been burnt or decomposed or they'd been in horrific, you know, accidents like the Newcastle bus accident just recently. Chris, how do you cope with the work that you've done? Clearly, it deeply affects you. And I'd be concerned if it didn't, to be honest. I drink a lot. Seriously? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd understand it. I, I actually sometimes wonder what the alcoholism and, and self-medicating rate is amongst people who do your line of work. But how how do you keep going? Like your first case was so horrific. It was somebody you knew. How on earth do you keep going? It's like doing an operation. You're a little... 
you've got a little green square and you operate within that green square and you rationalise what you're doing, you couldn't affect what happened there, so you might as well try and do what you can to get these people back to their families as soon as possible. And that's what we try and do. We just say, rationalise it that way. The, the effects on the story do get to you, but I think you, you find out how these people were killed and you should tell someone about it. They should be accountable. Accountable is important, but it's telling the story is, is important. You obviously came back to the Air Force in some ways, despite you started with them, but then you've actually returned to the Air Force for working for them. Can you talk to us about your work recovering planes that were downed in the war? We did an awful lot of recoveries, about 12 recoveries in Papua New Guinea and the South Pacific, full crews. Normally, if you crash a plane, you can find it, you know, in flat ground. But in the in the tropics, you've got mountains everywhere, uh, and you know, jungle. So if you crash a plane into a jungle, it swallows it up very quickly. And in New Guinea, there were 150 American planes from the Second World War with full crews and 50 Australians. And the first one I was involved with was one not so much in New Guinea. The other 11 were, but this one was in in Indonesia on the top of a mountain in 7,000 feet in an island called Baru. It's about the same size as Bali, a big island, uh, but it was a political prison um, after the, the um, Indonesian kind of nearly takeover at Sukarno's time in 63. It's, it's off in the Malacca group between Irian Jaya and Sulawesi. In this um, island of Baru, it's got a wonderful harbour, and people have been using it for hundreds of years as a secure harbour, Nanlea Harbour. And the Japanese, some of the Japanese fleet were in there, and the Australians came out in Catalinas at night, which are a kind of a reconnaissance plane, but they're the only thing that could get that range from Darwin right up into the middle of Indonesia. And one of them um, hit the top of a mountain at about 7,000 feet. And there are mountains 7,000 feet all the way around the island and the middle ones are about 9,000 feet. So some villages, you know, only a few years ago um, in the 1990s stumbled on the the wreckage right up on the top of the hill and they thought it was an American plane because it was a Catalina. But when they told the Americans of the number on it, A24, was it A2445? It was the 45th aircraft of A24 as the designation of a Catalina. It was an Australian plane. With how many crew? Catalinas had nine. And there was, the reports were that the plane had crashed somewhere in this island and that five of the crew had been captured and beheaded by the Japanese like all our crew were beheaded. So we went there. We had I had all their dental records from the Second World War because the Air Force keeps all these records. And so we went to Ambon and then caught a boat, a little boat we hired to go 100 kilometres over the sea to um, uh, Baru and go to this little village on the edge of the, which wasn't much space because a lot of, lot of mountains there, and climb 7,000 feet up with full packs, which was interesting um, in the tropical heat 
And when you get up to the top, it rains most of the time because the clouds hit the island, rained and rained. And there we set out a grid pattern. So I'd gone to the, been with the Americans, Silhai, the American Army Central Identification Laboratory in Hawaii. So I'd learned how to set out grid patterns and search by grid patterns and using the American style sieves to sieve everything to see that we didn't lose any dog tags or teeth. So on the top of the mountain, we got the remains down and we managed to, I figured out that I had nine left femurs, so I'd had nine crew from the top of the mountain. So they hadn't been beheaded. So the bodies we could the bodies actually were retrieve. There. We retrieved them and we identified seven from their dental records. And this is the first time that I'd really worked with the relations afterwards. When we did their burial, we went to the, and they, they were all buried in the Commonwealth War Cemetery at Ambon. And so all the families came and the daughters and the sons of these people. <clears throat> and it was um, <clears throat> interesting. I spoke to the daughter of the pilot who was born after he died. Her mother wouldn't talk very much about her father because they thought he might have been beheaded. But she said when they found that, you know, her mother found that he died on the top of a mountain with the rest of his crew, to quote it, it was like laying ghosts to rest. And she started telling her all these antidotes. So she got to know her father through this process as well because the mother would finally open yeah. up. Yeah, she opened up and tell her all the stories about her father, but she never told her before. That's a gift that you can't put any price on. No. And so we've done another 11 recoveries, and it's the same story every time. People coming up and saying we didn't know where they were. We knew they were in New Guinea somewhere, but, you know, nobody knew. And here, eventually, we got the story. We can bury them. We know that how they died, that they weren't kind of, tortured or beheaded, you know, they died with the rest of their crew, unfortunately, on the top of a mountain. This has been an incredible conversation and incredibly powerful as well. And I think if you've set out to tell stories that are impactful and need to be told, I think you've had a roaring success of a career even now. So to date, um, thank you so much for your storytelling and your keeping the story and the memories, but also all your detective work, all your problem solving, all the incredible skills that you've brought. Mm. No, um, it's been fun. It's been, and this is why people say, why don't you retire? And I'm getting old, but um, as long as you can still re- have two neurons to rub together, um, you know, why, why retire? Um, I still work three mornings a week and I enjoy it. Um, I don't play golf. Well, I hope you keep on keeping (laughs) on. So, Professor Chris Griffiths, thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure. Pleasure to tell the stories of these people. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.